you are Locked On A's, your daily Oakland A's podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. How's it going, A's fans, and welcome to episode 172 of the Locked On A's podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. I am your host, noted baseball fan Jason Burke, and on today's show, we continue our new series of figuring out who the best players were at each position during the Bailey Bean era. Yesterday, we talked about catchers. Today, we're doing first base, so we'll be working our way from number four to Jason Giambi throughout today's show, and when you're done listening, head over to our Twitter poll on Twitter, uh, where you can vote for your favorite of the four guys that I'm going to mention today. Uh, that'll be at Locked On A's on Twitter. We were also on Locked On A's on Instagram if you want to follow us and see some pictures and all that stuff. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at ByJasonB. And if you have any questions for us, please send those to LockedOnAthletics at gmail.com. So uh, yeah, we're doing all that. Make sure to vote in our polls because uh, that's how we determine the all-bean team. That's what we're calling it, the all-bean team. It's basically the best days at each position from 1998 when Billy Bean took over through this year of 2020. Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's what we're doing for the next couple of weeks. But let's get started with today's episode. The fourth best first baseman from 1998 to 2020 of the Bean era in Oakland is Brandon Moss. Uh, you may remember him from such hits as 2012 in 2013 and 2014 because that's when he was with the team uh technically nick swisher is listed above him but he slots into another position uh and that he played a little bit more frequently so we'll get our swish on in a few episodes but uh so that's why brandon moss is now fourth i know that if you're playing along at home and you're looking at the war leaderboards which is how i'm doing this it's all war leaderboards on fan graphs um brandon moss would be fifth but nick swisher is going to be placed somewhere else so uh cards on the table, I guess. Um, anyways, before Moss got to the A's, he was actually involved in a big three-team trade between the Pirates, Red Sox, and Dodgers, with two of the main pieces being Jason Bay, because he was actually good for like a couple of seasons, I think. And uh, Manny Ramirez was the other big piece in that deal. This is the deal that sent A's future star, referred to as just Manny, uh, to the Dodgers back in 2008. So in that deal, Brandon Moss went from Boston to Pittsburgh, and then he was granted free agency after the 2010 season where he signed with the Phillies and a couple of years later he hit the free agent market again and was picked up by the A's and by that point he had been pretty below average in his only real shot in the majors uh, with most of his at-bats coming in 2009 the other seasons he spent primarily in the minor leagues and was you know fine but uh, he made it to Oakland in June of 2012 and ended up batting 291 with a 358 on base and a 160 WRC plus that is 60% above league average he was killing it and uh he gave the a's a first baseman for a couple of seasons so that was nice in his time with the a's he put up seven and a half wins above replacement in three seasons and was an all-star in 2014 along with Derek norris and a slew of other people um he was traded following the 2014 season to cleveland in exchange for joey wendell who we all just watched in the world series with the rays uh wendell was acquired from cleveland and then he was shipped out to tampa bay for jonah heim and jonah is currently the a's backup catcher and he's a pretty damn good one too so so uh, the A's got some depth at catching because of that one Brandon Moss trade from a few years ago. But when it was coming out that Brandon Moss is probably on the trade block, I was like, oh, you know who they're totally going to get is this this guy. He's a he's a good prospect. Francisco Lindor. That's who they're going to get. I did not know much about, uh, you know, trade value and stuff at that point. So I was convinced they were getting Francisco Lindor. Kind of. I'm 
only partially joking. I don't know how serious I actually was about that just a few years ago, but I feel like it was in the realm of possibility in my dumb brain back then. So uh, I have I have educated myself on trade values since then. And uh, so, yeah, Brandon Moss for Francisco Lindor was never going to happen. And uh, that's that. Uh, the A's actually traded for Brandon Moss back in 2018, if you guys remember, sending Jesse Hahn, who the A's got in the Derek Norris deal that I mentioned yesterday, with Kansas City sending Moss and lefty reliever Ryan Buchter. Moss was cut before the end of the spring training and hasn't played in the big league since. But moving on to my main memory of Moss, and that is uh, one of the last times he actually donned an A's uniform. Uh, it, technically, it was in, in season the last time. Uh, it was his two for five, two home run, and five RBI performance in the AL wildcard game. Back in 2014, which is still one of the most exciting games that I've witnessed, even though the ending really, really sucked. He uh, he was hitting some dingers, and that was a lot of fun to watch because he had been struggling for like the last couple of months up until that point. So uh, to see him come out and do that, I was like, hey, if the A's win this game, they got a legit shot again. They're, they're waking up. And then uh, some people couldn't throw to first base, and uh, some people that were catchers got hurt and couldn't throw runners out, and it was a terrible game after that. But anyways, uh, Brandon Moss provided some nice memories in that game. I also remember that one of the first times that I did press work in Oakland, I didn't know my way around at all, and I was leaving the ballpark after getting my work done, and I was walking out with uh, Brandon Moss. He just like happened to be in front of me, and I was speed walking because I needed to get the hell out of there, and I'm pretty sure I was going out the player exit, and I was like, eh, you know, and so I was walking by him, and he was like, hey, and we talked for a minute, you know, as we walked, and uh, he just was really nice and cool because uh, I was probably definitely not where I was supposed to be. And uh, it was just cool of him to start a conversation with someone who he didn't know. And I was arguably leaving out the wrong entrance. And instead of, you know, being a jerk about it, like some people would have been, uh, he was just a decent dude. And he just created like a more welcoming environment. So uh, good job on him for being a great dude and a uh, great A's first baseman there for a couple of years. So uh, that is Brandon Moss ranked number four among A's first baseman according to war but if he is number one in your hearts make sure to vote for him in our twitter poll at locked on ace uh coming in at number three on the war leaderboard is Derek barton who finished just ahead of moss with 7.7 wins above replacement barton came over from the cardinals in the mark Mulder trade along with uh, kiko calero and dan heron and barton was supposed to be the centerpiece of this deal being that he was a late first rounder just a year before he was traded and some outlets were calling him the next albert pujols which at that time was very high praise. It's not like Albert Pujols now, where, uh, you know, he was a perennial MVP candidate for the Cardinals, and I feel like people forget about that sometimes. That's why he signed that big-ass contract with the Angels. It's because he used to be really, really good, and this is what they were comparing Derek Barton to. Uh, he was supposed to be that centerpiece, and uh, it ended up being Dan Heron serving as the saving grace in this deal. But uh, Barton, for all the vitriol that he received from fans for quote-unquote sucking, actually had a decent stat line for eight seasons with the A's. He played in 551 games. He hit 247 with a 356 on base percentage and had a 102 WRC+. So he wasn't hitting the snot out of the ball or anything like that, but he was 2% better than league average. He wasn't a bad guy to have playing first base. He was a league average bat and his defense was roughly similar to Matt Olson's. And uh, I think that if Barton had a little bit more pop in the bat, he would have been golden. He ended up with 30 career homers, so he 
he was not known for the power that was in his bet. But, uh, you know, all this said, I think that my main memory of Barton is probably him taking strike three. Not any specific memory of him taking a strike three, but it just seemed to happen a lot. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I, I enjoyed watching Derek Barton. I thought that he was a, a pretty decent player, but I also remember him striking out on called strike threes quite a bit. And that's about as critical as I'm going to be about Derek Barton uh, pretty much ever, I think. Um, he was a really patient hitter. He had a walk rate of 13.9%, and not because pitchers were pitching around him, but because he just knew the strike zone so well, even though he was getting called strike threes. Um, in his one full season in 2010, he led the league in walks and had a 393 on base percentage, which is pretty solid. Uh, you would think that, you know, he, oh, he's going to build off of this in 2011, and uh, that did not happen. He struggled on the first couple of months of 2011 and was sent to Sacramento. And then the following year, Brandon Moss came to town and kind of took over, so uh, Barton was released. Oh, he, he stayed with the team for a couple more seasons, and then he was released following the 2014 season and signed on with the Blue Jays, but never made it back to the majors. And that's kind of just the the Derek Barton story. And I've always kind of felt bad for him because of the amount of expectations that were heaped on his shoulders when he was treated as a 17-year-old. And when you're getting compared to the best first baseman in the game that young, and one of the best first basemen of all time that young, the only option from there is to just fall short no matter what you do. So uh, I always felt like that was a little bit unfair and I felt bad for him because, uh, you know, he, he had a nice glove. He had a good stretch going at first. He just didn't have a ton of power. And I think that that was probably the downfall for uh, first time in Oakland and for his career. Ultimately, um, Derek Barton, if you want to come on the pod and just, you know, shoot the shit, uh, Hit us up. I'm at by Jason B. We're at Locked On A's. Uh, reach out, and we will definitely have you on. We'll just we'll just talk some baseball and have some fun. Remember some times. Anyway, coming up on the show, I have the top two first basemen in the Bean era, and tomorrow we're talking about second basemen. So stay locked in with Locked On A's. I'll be right back. Welcome back to the Locked On A's podcast. Make sure that you do not miss any of the All Bean team by subscribing to the podcast wherever you like hearing podcasts. And also make sure to follow us on social media at Locked On A's on Twitter, where you can do the voting for the All Bean team. And also uh, Locked On A's on Instagram. I am at ByJasonB on Twitter. And if you have any mailbag questions for us, you can send those to LockedOnAthletics at gmail.com. But moving right along with first baseman today, uh, we got number two on the ward leaderboard, and that is current A's first baseman Matt Olson with 10.1 wins above replacement in 419 games. In his four seasons with the A's, Olsen has finished fourth in Rookie of the Year voting and has won two Gold Glove awards on top of walloping 103 homers. So far, he has hit 245 with a 338 on base percentage, and for what it's worth, Derek Barton had slightly better marks than those, but nowhere near the pop that Olsen has, so that is why I believe that Derek Barton, if he had some pop, he would have been a much better first baseman, but that's beside the point. They're, they're both d uh, defensive wizards at first base. But anyways, uh, Olsen has a cumulative WRC plus of 126 with the A's thus far. That can go up or down, probably up, uh, in the coming years. And uh, But since he is still playing for the A's, it's kind of hard to figure out what his Oakland-defining moment has been so far. So I guess that if I have to pick, I'm going to go with opening day of this past season and specifically the 10th inning of that game. In the top of the 10th, the Angels got a runner on second to start the frame because of that silly new rule that Rob Manfred instituted. Uh, and this was the first time that anybody had seen this in action. So what happened? Matt Olson fielded a Jared Walsh grounder that 
then fire the ball to Chapman across the diamond. They got Shohei Otani in a rundown. They got the lead runner, and uh, that's kind of just the defense that he brings to the game. And that's what I think about when I think of Matt Olson as some defense. And, uh, you know, obviously in this play, Matt Chapman was a big part of it too. But Olson's glove, his throwing ability, his awareness, uh, they were all on display in this one. And that's not something that many first basemen have. And then in the bottom of the inning, he also hit a walk-off grand slam to end the game. And that's essentially what encapsulates everything that I think of when Matt Olson comes to mind is just that 10th inning of the first game of the season in 2020 and uh, just hitting dingers and playing great defense. And uh, that's Matt Olson for you. Um, yeah, I don't have a lot more to say about Matt Olson. His story is still being written. So uh, yeah, that's uh, that's that. Uh, and now this is the moment that we have all been waiting for the number one first baseman of the Bean era. And I'm pretty sure we all know who it is. It's Olmedo Signs. I'm kidding, it's Jason Giambi, you guys. And I don't know where to start with this guy. His whole stat line is as massive as his bicep. Uh, I think that the most impressive stat is that in his 700 games with the A's, he walked more than he struck out. In 2000, he won the AL MVP and walked 137 times with just 96 strikeouts. He also hit 333 with a 476 on base percentage. He hit 43 home runs and he drove in 137. You don't see stats like that too often anymore. And uh, the A's had one of those guys. That's that's fun. Um, yeah. Anyways, uh, it's amazing that the MVP was so close that year, too, because uh, Giambi just edged out another future A's great in Frank Thomas by just a few votes. Uh, I think it was like four first place votes that uh, did him in. So good job on that. And I'm pretty sure that the deciding factor on many of these balloteers minds had to be Jason Giambi's two stolen bases compared to the Big Hurts one. And that's what sealed up the award for Jason. So obviously he was great in the year 2000. And overall with the A's, the Giambino hit 307 with a 428 on base percentage and a 155 WRC plus. That is 55% above league average. He was just a friggin' beast. And arguably his best seasons of his career came with the A's. I mean, he still had a couple of pretty good seasons with the Yankees. And while he was still crushing dingers with the short porch in Yankee Stadium, his batting average took a huge nosedive in his second season with the Yankees in 03, where he hit 250 and he never really got close to hitting 300 again. Uh, I think the closest he got was like 271 in one of the other like 10 years of his career. So the A's arguably got the best of what Giambi had to offer. And then, uh, then they let him walk and then they just replaced him with an aggregate of people, which uh, I'll, I'll get into that here in one second. But my main memories of Giambi with the A's are that Sports Illustrated cover declaring him the new face of baseball with his sleeves cut off and his tattoo showing and his wet hair in his face. There was also uh, an MVP pen. It might have been like a vote Giambi for MVP kind of thing, but uh, I do definitely remember it being pinned to the sun visor in the family car and uh, that being fun and exciting. Um, but my main memory of Giambi isn't necessarily from him on a baseball field. It's actually from the book Moneyball, which I definitely spent time in class reading instead of paying attention at DVC. Uh, the specific part of the book that comes to mind is in the chapter Giambi's Hole, which ha ha ha, but in rereading it tonight, uh, you could see where a lot of the inspiration for the Giambi scenes in the Moneyball movie come from. Um, and to set the scene for this thing that I'm going to read real quick, Michael Lewis, who is the author of Moneyball, if you want to believe the deep state, obviously Billy Bean wrote this manifesto for himself to put himself up on a pedestal. Or some people actually believe that, and that's 
crazy to me. But anyways, uh, Michael Lewis is uh, he's in the film room during an A's and Yankees game. He's talking to a 25 year old David Forrest. Uh, Dan Feinstein's in the room or Finey as he uh, is referred to. And uh, Paul De Podesta is also in the room. So uh, that is uh, that's the scene for this part of the book that has for some reason stuck with me that I was reading during like stats class and at DVC. So here we go. The issue wasn't whether a hitter had a weakness, but where it was. Every pitcher in the big leagues knew that Giambi's hole was waist high on the inside corner of the plate. It was about the size of a pint of milk, two baseballs in height, and one in width, which raised an obvious question. Why don't pitchers just aim for the milk pint? When I ask it, Finey smiles and shakes his head. They do, David says, but he's so good that he'll step back and rip one foul into the upper deck. After that, the pitcher won't go inside again. And his weakness is right next to his greatest strength, says Paul. If they miss by two inches over the plate, the ball is gone. The pitcher is out there thinking, I can get him out there, but if I miss by even a fraction, he'll destroy me. So for some reason, that is the portion of the book that comes to mind when I think about Jason Giambi. Uh, I think it's because I didn't necessarily know that players had holes, uh, especially ones that everybody knew about, but they still couldn't get them out. I thought that was fascinating. Uh, And also that Jason Giambi was so good that even though he had a hole and everybody knew that he had a hole, that they could still get him out. Um, That was just really, really cool. And that's what I think about when I think about Jason Giambi, as well as the Sports Illustrated cover. So that's where my mind goes. And I'm sure that the less nerdy of you guys have much better memories of him, like crushing dingers and winning games. And uh, this is where my mind goes. And I don't know why I I, I can specifically remember which room I was in when I was reading that. Uh, so that's a lot of fun. Uh, if you want to go to DVC with me, I'll point out the room for you guys. And now I have the room where it happened from Hamilton stuck in my head. So uh, that's fun. Anyways, um, I, I want to mention a couple of, the, of other guys that were on this list. Uh, three guys that did not make the cut for the pod, but uh, I, I want to give them to you guys in order. And the first one is Scott Hatterberg and... We all have that one Scott Hatterberg moment memory, so uh, I'm not going to go too deep into him. Uh, the other one is Olmedo Signs, who I remember after the A's clinched the West on the final day of the season, uh, one of the seasons, I forget which one, uh, the team ran around the Coliseum and uh, they were on the field and they were slapping everybody's hand and all that stuff. And Almeido was the one guy I remember slapping my hand and I was like, oh, I'll never wash this hand again. And I like watched it immediately. Um, so yeah, I remember Almeido signs being that guy. I also remember a game ending when he was up with the bases loaded and got hit by a pitch to send in the winning run and the crowd paused for for like a second and then uh interpreted what had just happened and then they just went crazy and it was a lot of fun we're like oh well how dare you hit our guy oh wait we win this is fun (laughs) um so that was the first time that i'd ever seen a game uh end on a hit by pitch and uh, i actually looked up what game this was and it apparently happened on july 20th of 2002 against the rangers but in looking for that specific instance i had to go through three seasons of hit by pitches for olmedo signs and he got hit 42 times in four seasons with the a's and keep in mind that he was getting under 300 plate appearances a season too. So he was getting hit so often. That's probably why he was on the team. He was like, hey, you get hit a bunch. There you go, Olmedo. And a lot of those hit by pitches were by the Red Sox, like at least 10 of them. And they played the Red Sox not that many, like six times a year. Um, So I want to know if there is a vendetta there. I may have to do some more digging to find that out. Um, And then finally, there's Dan Johnson. 
and my main memory of him is actually the monster homer that he hit for the Rays on the final day of the season against the Yankees that tied the game in the bottom of the ninth with two outs. This was in 2011. Uh, the Rays went on to win it in extras, and that win, coupled with the Red Sox loss, put Tampa in the playoffs instead of Boston as the wild card, completing Boston's huge collapse, and it led to the firing of Terry Francona. So, uh... That's my main takeaway from Dan Johnson being a baseball player. Not necessarily with the A's, just as a baseball player. So I uh, just wanted to name some more names for you guys. But uh, that is it for me today, you guys. So don't forget to vote in our Twitter poll. And you can do that at Locked on A's on Twitter. And the link to our account is also in the show notes to make things super easy for you guys. All you got to do, click on the show notes, click on the link to Twitter, and uh, it'll be right there for you guys pinned to our profile. So until next time, stay indoors and celebrate good times, Oakland. Keep wearing those masks. And we'll do second baseman tomorrow.